We're going to uh, get into our sermon text in a few minutes, but I wanted to just share a few thoughts with you about suffering first. I've been very aware of suffering this week. COVID, cancer, diagnoses, a car wreck, marriages that are struggling. And the Bible gives us a, a rubric for understanding and for responding as Christians to suffering. And I've provided these as notes in your bulletin so you can kind of take them home and remember them if they would be helpful, if these verses will be helpful. Um, but, but the first point here I just want to make is that we, we Christians understand that pain and suffering are a normal part of living in a fallen world. So like you, I was shocked when I got the call Tuesday afternoon that my brother and sister had been in a, in a terrible wreck. Shocked, but not surprised that these things happen. You know, our, our, our culture tries so hard, especially our entertainment industry, tries so hard to shield us from the reality of suffering, trying to give us the illusion that, that this life now is to be our, our heaven. But that glass house shatters when things like a, a horrific car wreck with loved ones and good friends of ours suffer like the swans do right now. And we're confronted that we live in a temporal, broken world. Jesus said that. He, he guaranteed suffering would happen. In John 16, he said, I've said these things to you that in me you may, you may have peace. In me, not in, not in a normal, pain-free life. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Secondly, it is right and it is godly to grieve with our brothers and sisters when they suffer. Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But we grieve and we weep with hope together in God's sovereign promises that He will use tragedies in our lives for our good, even if we can't see that at the moment. So we're to keep our eyes fixed on the sure promise of eternal life. That's where we find our eternal hope. That's where we put our hope, where God will recreate the broken world that we live in into an eternal existence with no more sin or pain, but true fullness of joy and even glory with him, that the life that we were created for is the one that is to come. That's where our ultimate hope is to be. And we see that in Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. In Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. And to us. And so we show our genuine faith in God and our genuine love for our brothers and sisters who are suffering by seeking to serve them during their time of need. And man, it's been encouraging to see the way that many of you have done that very thing these last few days for the Swan family. Um, remembering that one day 
in all of our lives, it's going to be our turn to be on the receiving end of that at some point. Romans 12, 9 through 13 says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Fifth point is that the greatest way to help our suffering brothers and sisters is to pray for them. That is really true. And that is exactly what our brother Bart has asked us to do, to pray for his family. Um, You know, the Bible says in James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So, brothers and sisters, let us rise up. I was encouraged Wednesday night. Um, we had a, our, our regular virtual prayer meeting on Zoom at 6.30. Um, I think about five times the normal attendance. Um, May it be that way every week. Join us, 6.30. We're praying for real needs. And it makes a real difference in people's lives. It, 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 it can be the difference between life and death, physically and eternally. So please, come and pray with us at 6.30. And you know, when we, when we pray fervently for needs, I mean, when there's a, a need that's so visceral that you know you just have to drop to your knees in prayer for, you know what else happens? confession of sin right because sometimes there are those sins that we've just locked in the closet or or hidden tucked away and and we know deep down that that is putting a wall up in our relationship with the lord and and when you need god to when you need god and you know you need god you you know you got to confess and that purifies the church suffering gives opportunity to reflect on the sufferings of Jesus Christ and also to be thankful. And that also draws us nearer to him, a spirit of gratitude and and thanksgiving. First of all, for his suffering, for our eternal salvation, but also for the great undeserved blessings that he gives us each day. I I went home from, I never got in, but outside the hospital on Tuesday night, and my kids were asleep, but... um, I, I just went in there and looked at each of them and prayed for them. Maybe, maybe you held your family a little tighter. I hope so. And gave God thanks for your family. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 tells us, Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. That's like the ticket right there. With thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God and the, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. Now, I emailed most of these points to you this week. If you didn't get a chance to read that, um, it's right here in your, in your bulletin. I hope you'll just tuck this in your back pocket and pull it out this week. And, and remember this rubric that God gives us as we pray and as we think through and as we respond to all kinds of 
suffering. But there's one more point I want to make that I didn't put in that email. And that's this. Suffering often leads us to deeper awareness of God's presence. That's specifically what I've been praying the most for Bart and Olivia this week. I've been praying for miracles. I've been praying for healing. I've been praying for for souls to be saved through this. But I've been praying specifically that the Lord would make them aware in their pain of his presence in a way that they have never felt before. In a deeper, more real way that is more real than anything else to them. More real than the pain. More real than the medical data that they're having to digest right now. More real than the PT and all the other things they're having to go through right now. Psalm 91 verse 1 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. That's a picture of just God descending down and, 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 and just living right there close underneath his protective presence. And Paul, we don't have time to like dig deep on this one. I wish I did. But in Philippians 3.10, we did this about four years ago. Um, Paul said that, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. He's talking about Jesus. And may share in his sufferings. He's talking about intimacy with Jesus Christ during suffering. Well, about an hour ago, um, I got an email from Bart. And there were some spelling errors. I could tell he was still under the influence a little bit. Um, But it was straight from his heart. And he says, and he, he gave me permission to read it. And I actually called Wendy to make sure that I had her permission to. Um... Or, you know, do I need to do a little surgery on this, what he wrote? And she gave her thumbs up. And so he wanted you to get this message from him. This is for his church family. He says, it looks like Olivia and myself will be in the hospital and or rehab facilities for several weeks to come. I've been absolutely overwhelmed by the response from our church and family. I've been so encouraged by it that I can honestly say that it feels worth it in some senses. But with my daughter struggling, it's very, very hard. Thank you all for reaching out in the ways you have. We've had people driving from out of state to stay with us and to help. People fly in from out of state. We've had people come over and visit and drop things off and tell us that they are praying for us. And that because they're all family in one way or another, they will do anything for us. We have received many text messages and emails with scripture, and those have been especially encouraging. I I pray that you will continue to pray for my family as we get a glimpse of what our future might look like. I'm really proud of Ryder. I've been told he's acting like a 40-year-old with his composure, wisdom, and leadership. And I'm proud of my Wendy that God has strengthened her to be strong in areas that are not her natural strengths. God has answered those prayers in spades. A friend sent me a text that said, as you know, when Paul was praying about his thorn in the flesh, probably the lingering results of a donkey slash semi-accident on the road to Damascus, he prayed, three times I've pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12, 8-10. The pain, discomfort, and helplessness that I'm feeling is insurmountable, but God, caps, uses our weaknesses to make us strong. I know that God will absolutely magnify his name through this, as he already has, and I pray for you to stay the course when the times will be long and hard. He will provide. He will exalt his name on the earth. I love you all, and my family is your family. Never have I been better felt, never have I better felt that reality, and I praise God for it. Amen. Well, let's bow right now and pray for our dear brother and sister and, and family. Heavenly Father, we pray, we lift up our hearts to you for Bart and for Olivia and for Wendy and for their children, the rest of the kids, and Lord, for all of their extended family some of them who are here this morning. Oh Lord, we pray that they would all sense your presence in a way more intimate than they ever have before. Lord, thank you for the ways that we've already heard that you're using this tragedy for good to show your love, to show the love of your people to people who don't yet know Jesus. Lord, I I pray that you would continue to work miracles. We pray for full healing, Lord, knowing that you are the great physician for Olivia and for Bart. Lord, I thank you for preserving their lives. I thank you for the responders. I thank you for the helicopter pilots. I thank you for the doctors, surgeon who saved Olivia's life. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful care, the nursing facility, the nursing um, uh, um, faculty, the, the people who have loved them so much. Lord, thank you for even allowing Wendy access to the hospital again today. Unexpected um, blessing from you. I pray that her time with her husband and her daughter would just be sweet. Lord, open the doors that are needed, that we need you to open for their help. But Lord, I pray that you would provide for them all of their needs according to your riches and glory in Jesus. And use your church, Lord, in many ways to do this. And Lord, I, I pray again, God, that you would bring your healing and that you would get all the glory for it. And Lord, I pray that because of this, you would equip Bart and, and, and Olivia and Wendy and, and us, Lord, to better proclaim the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you look in your bulletin, we are going to continue in Romans. I did some shortening of my sermon even last night and even this morning. Uh, because I really wanted to share those things with you uh, that I just shared and and pray for Bart and Wendy. But we are in a very interesting chapter, Romans chapter 11, in which we see that that God is not yet finished with Israel. Last week we saw that there is a remnant. Paul said he is a model of that remnant. He told us, he, he told the story of Elijah when Elijah was under that broom tree and despondent, feeling like he was the only one left. 
the only one who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal and and God revealed to Elijah, no, I have 7,000 men who are faithful. And today there's a remnant, minority though it may be, of, of Jewish Christians. So Paul made that argument last week that God is not finished with Israel because there's a remnant. We explored how, what does it mean to live knowing that there will always, God will always have his remnant. Next week, we're going to see that God has a glorious future for his people Israel, a day in which in mass they bow before their Messiah and, and repent of their rejection of him and come to, you could say, massive conversion. And this week, Paul talks on that a little bit, but, but his main point is that God is not finished with Israel because their rejection of their Messiah is temporary. And that's our first point this morning, verses 11 and 12. God is not finished with Israel because their rejection of Jesus is temporary. Look at verse 11. Paul says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. It's very interesting concepts there in that very first verse, which is really kind of our key verse for this whole section. That the Jews stumbled on the stumbling stone. That is Christ. We looked at that a couple weeks ago when we looked at Romans 9, 32. But their fall, Paul says, is temporary. They didn't just fall on their faces to never get up again. They they will get back up. They're not going to reject Jesus forever. The the Living Bible puts this first verse, it interprets this verse this way. Does this mean that God has rejected his Jewish people forever? Of course not. You see, one day that there will be a full inclusion of the Jews into the kingdom of God, meaning that a majority even of the, of the Jewish people, as we're going to look at next week, all Israel shall be saved, it says, right? They will come to know Yeshua the same way we have, through faith in Christ as their Savior and as their Lord and as their hero. Look with me at the next verse, verse 12. Paul says, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? You see, the, the, the failure of the nation of Israel to wholeheartedly embrace Jesus, their Messiah, that rejection of the gospel by many of the Jews actually was great for the nations, okay? Because it, it contributed to the gospel going out to the Gentiles. There were, there were four times, and, and I had to cut this. We don't have time to look at it this morning, but there were four times in the book of Acts, separate occasions in which we read that the Jewish rejection of the gospel led to its being taken to the Gentiles, who received it with gladness. And so what Paul is arguing here is that, that if the rejection meant riches for us, the nations, the world, that glorious day in which Israel 
receives the gospel in mass, it's going to mean a whole lot more blessing for all the world. That there will be a great future for the world when Israel comes to faith in mass. And it's going to happen one day. Well, what does that mean exactly? Um, a great future. Well, look with me down to our next section. Look, look down to verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now that seems a little cryptic, perhaps. Um, and actually, there's, there's a lot of different ideas about what this means, what life from the dead. What's clear is reconciliation of the world. Salvation came to us because the, the Jews rejected their Messiah in God's sovereignty. God used that to propel. I mean, even the initial persecution of the church in Jerusalem by the, at the hand of the Jews scattered the, the gospel out to the nations. And, and Paul's continual rejection and, and persecution by Jews in the different cities that he would go to led to, to him going to the Gentiles and the gospel being spread and, and taken around the world to the nations, right? So that's clear. But life from the dead. Well, some take this as referring to the eschaton or, or the return of Jesus, okay? Uh, in other words, uh, on their charts, um, Israel will come to faith in the last days, and then that will kind of trigger Christ's return to this world where there will be no more death. That's kind of a, a very literal um, rendering, and that's a possibility. Others take it more figuratively. Years ago, I had the privilege of visiting Israel and I, I, there, there is, I, I don't think I've been to, a, I, I haven't been to a place more patriotic. I mean, America's pretty patriotic, especially in the South. But Israel, more patriotic. And where everybody worked together and had a strong sense of purpose. And they've made the, the, the desert bloom. I mean, the, the irrigation and all, the, all this community effort has, I mean, they have done amazing things with the place. There's a day in which, because of the gospel being fully embraced by the Jewish people, this whole world is going to get a whole lot better. One, one writer put it this way, a worldwide quickening and spread of spiritual life will come when Israel is restored. Israel will become a tonic to the nations. The difference will be so dramatic that it can only be described as the difference between life and death. Well, the bottom line here in Paul's argument could be summarized uh, as, as a, a chain with three links. And John Stott kind of came up with this illustration. I don't know if he came up with it, but he, he used it in his commentary. And this is what he wrote. First, already through Israel's fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Secondly, this Gentile salvation will make Israel envious and so lead to her restoration or fullness. Thirdly, Israel's fullness will bring yet much greater riches to the world. That's Paul's argument here in this, in this text. And that leads us to the second point, and that is God will use the mission of the Gentiles that Paul is undergoing and that we're undergoing right now as we take the gospel to all the nations to provoke 
the Jewish people to salvation. Now, you might find it interesting that he uses the word jealous in a positive note. Often we, we think of jealousy as being negative, but when you read the Bible, God says, I'm a jealous God, right? A, a, a wife is not wrong to be jealous if her husband is straying. So it's really about the object of the jealousy. Look at verse 13 and 14. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, insomuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Remember that Paul, who is known as that great apostle to the Gentiles, but he, he actually had a heart for his fellow Jews to come to believe in their Messiah. I mean, when he would go to a, a city in the Roman Empire, he would go to the synagogue first and proclaim the gospel. And when he got kicked, when, when they threw him out on his ear, he would go down to the marketplace and proclaim Christ to the Gentiles. John Stott explains this concept of provoking the Jews to jealousy this way. He, he says, he knows that when Israel sees the blessings of salvation enjoyed by believing Gentiles, their, their reconciliation to God and to each other, their forgiveness, their love, joy, and peace to the Spirit, they will covet these blessings for themselves, and it is implied will repent and believe in Jesus in order to secure them. Thus provoked to envy, they will be led to conversion. Pastor Kent Hughes actually tells a story about this very thing happening uh, in, his, in his book on, this, uh, on, on the book of Romans. Um, he writes, Individual believers in the corporate body of Christ are meant to lead lives that radiate such reality that unbelieving Jews will be provoked to spiritual jealousy. Sometimes this indeed happens. My dean during seminary days was a brilliant Jew, Dr. Charles Feinberg. He was so intelligent that he could continue lecturing to his class without missing a syllable while writing a note to his secretary. How did this brilliant Jew come to Christ? Just after Dr. Feinberg graduated Phi Beta Kappa from the University of Pittsburgh, he lived in an Orthodox Jewish household. That household had a Sabbath Gentile, a, a Gentile woman who was hired to serve them on the Sabbath. Though Feinberg was not aware of it, this woman had taken the rites of purification simply so that she could bear witness in that home. Feinberg was attracted by the quality of this believer's life and began to ask questions. Although the woman could not give him all the answers, she took, him, she took him to Dr. John Solomon, then resident head of the American Board of the Mission to the Jews, and Dr. Feinberg was led to Christ. He had been made thirsty, jealous, so to speak, beautifully jealous by this cleaning woman. The church is to be a place where there is such love for Christ and such love for each other that Jews and Gentiles become thirsty for Christ. What a challenge. And you know, man, God is, God is doing this right now uh, among Muslims in the world. You know, the, the, the majority of Muslims who come to know Jesus, many of them honestly have had dreams. 
but the majority of them witnessed for a long time authentic Christian community, right? They, or they, they were loved by Christians. And, and they watched Christians love each other. And, and, and they long for that community. And so, you know, even in the last few days, I, I've rejoiced and greatly encouraged uh, to, see, to, to actually hear um, report that the love that our church has expressed to the Swan family has actually impressed some non-Christians who have seen that, seen that community. And, and it draws people. Man, they, imagine going through life without a church family. Imagine getting a cancer diagnosis without a church family. Um, Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. Well, Paul, again, reminds us that the Jewish rejection of Christ is temporary with two illustrations. And I'm going to try, I'm going to have to kind of fly through these. Um, the first, you see in verse 16, he says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. We, we read that, and when I first read it a few times, I thought, what, what is he talking about? But, you know, for, for a Jew, uh, this would have been pretty clear. Uh, this was a reference to the Old Testament offering of the first fruits, where the priest would take like a, a lump of the dough and would offer it to God as being holy. And that lump would signify that the, the whole dough was consecrated or holy to the Lord. It was a blessing from, from God. And so the, the, the lump, that, that little bit of the whole represents the whole. And so Abraham was the first fruit, as it were, of Israel. He was justified by faith. And so Paul's arguing here is that, hey, the, the Jewish rejection of their Messiah is temporary. One day, Israel as a whole will accept Christ, and, and God will accept Israel. The, the whole lump will be holy, just like the first fruits were. And, and you know, Abraham and the, the uh, apostles, um, the, they were, in a sense, the first fruits of Israel. Well, the second illustration is our third point, and that is the lesson of the olive tree. God's prescription for our attitude, and, and specifically here he's talking about Gentiles' attitude towards Jews, but we can, we can apply this in, in a number of ways uh, in our own lives. Folks who are different, our attitude is to be humility, a lesson in humility from the olive tree. Look at verse 17 and, and 18. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Now this is an agricultural illustration of grafting in. And I, I watched, we had a gardener in Afghanistan, and I watched him do this uh, with fruit trees. And the normal way of grafting, like a wild olive tree, would be to take a healthy branch and to 
kind of cut off a, a, a branch that may not be real productive of a, of a tree, and, and you put that, and you kind of kind of jam that, that, you graft that healthy olive branch into the tree, and it becomes more productive. Okay, so you kind of, you upgrade the tree, so to speak. But Paul's analogy here is actually a reverse analogy. And actually that's, I don't have much time here to get into the minutia with you, but that has troubled, and even some have mocked Paul. Even some, I, I mean, I looked at some scholars who are like, look at that city slicker. Doesn't really understand how grafting works. Because Paul here, in his illustration, has it opposite. God's tree is Israel, the patriarchs, the prophets, the Jewish Messiah. And, and this is a powerful tree. So God's tree is not getting stronger necessarily because of adding the branches. The branches are getting stronger because of the tree, right? So the Gentiles, that's us, we were the wild olive shoots. That's like we're, we're branches or shoots that were cut off of an unproductive wild olive tree and grafted in to the powerful tree. And, and, and therefore, we have become productive. We bear fruit, right, when we're saved. Interestingly enough, there's two possible explanations for Paul's illustration. One, he very well may have known that he was kind of going against the way it was normally done. Uh, he does say later in um, verse 24, he, he says, um, contrary to nature. So if you were grafted in contrary to nature, maybe that's what he means. Like, hey, look, I know my illustration is opposite day. But actually, in 1905, some, uh, some researchers and, and anthropologists found in Palestine, they actually do it exactly the way Paul described it, uh, to actually help revitalize certain kinds of olive trees. They actually will take less productive ways, and the sap actually helps the branches, and it actually works. So either way, uh, this is the Word of God. And the illustration here, the whole point of the illustration is that the tree is what's powerful. And so we Gentile uh, branches should not be arrogant. You had this church in Rome where you had branches that were Jewish and branches that were Gentile, right, in one church. And it was very easy at this point where the Gentiles were the majority and they see a lot of Jews that have, have rejected Christ and then they have Jews in their mix that want to Judaize them, want to circumcise them. They're saying, no thanks. Um, easy for those Gentiles to become racist, to kind of look down on those ignorant Jewish Christians. Does that make sense? They're different. They've got a different culture. And to make fun of them. And, and sadly, we've seen this throughout the ages. Um, Anti-Semitism. The race, racism, frankly, towards Jewish people. Persecution of, of Jews. And when we think of anti-Semitism, often we... We think of, you know, the, the pogroms of the 19th century in Russia, where if you've seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof, you see an example of that, you know, just being driven out from their villages and their homes. Um, or we think of the Nazi Holocaust of the 20th century. But sadly, anti-Semitism has worked its way into the church throughout the ages. Um, Martin Luther towering giant of the faith, but a man with feet of clay, early in his ministry, was very favorable towards the Jews. Wrote very positive things about him, um, reached out to him with the gospel, and was largely rejected. And he got to a point of frustration that he wrote a very nasty pamphlet 
called Concerning the Jews and Their Lies. And he said some, Luther was a very passionate man, um, and he kind of went off on a tirade. And sadly, some of what he wrote was later used by Adolf Hitler as propaganda for why Christians should persecute the Jewish people. So we've got to check our own lives, our own version of Christianity to make sure that there's no place for anti-Semitism of any kind. Look at verse 19 through 22 with me, if you will, and we'll just move quickly through these verses where Paul is saying, humility, humility. Then you will say, that would be you Gentiles, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off, that would be the the unbelieving Jews, because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, that would be the Jews, who wouldn't believe, who rejected Jesus because of their arrogance, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Get that? There's a warning to us Gentile branches. Be humble. Be kind. Otherwise, you too are going to face the same judgment. That's what the Word of God says. We also see here, after this warning to the Gentiles to respect the Jewish branches, we see the the promise that God will graft many more Jewish branches back into his tree in the future. And that it will actually be contrary to nature where, you know, you cut a branch off a tree and it it dies. Um, Paul's argument is, hey, and he admits this is contrary to nature, Hey, this is a, like a Jewish branch, very, very natural. It belongs in that tree for him to plug that back in. Okay, that's what Paul's argument is here. Look at verse 22 through, or 23 through 24. And even they, that would be the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off by what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? You know, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, who are having a similar issue, uh, racial division between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church. Um, He wrote some deep stuff in Ephesians chapter 2, Right, and, and we, 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 we learn much about his church and, and Christ being the, the, the foundation. But he was, he was dealing with a very relevant issue in which there was ungrace going on. And so he's writing to the Gentiles and he's writing to the Jews. And this is what he, what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that would be the Jewish people, which is made in the flesh by hands. I love all the qualifiers. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated 
from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, you, you Gentiles were lost. But now, in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who are once far off from God and his covenants, but also far off from the Jews, he's saying here, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh that dividing wall of hostility. So the bottom line, God's prescription for all of us, but especially in our context here as us Gentiles, is great humility. We were grafted in to the tree. Humility will help cure the hostility between the Jew and the Gentile in the first century Roman church. Humility will help cure the hostility between racially divided Christians in the 21st century church. I remember 20 years ago, um, as a young youth pastor, evangelism pastor in South Carolina, driving uh, to church past two African-American churches to get to my majority white church. I remember watching, every, I mean, they, they dressed up, they looked good, way better than we did. Um, you know, all coming in. Um, I, I remember driving by and always wondering, you know, I, I, it was like a seven-minute drive. I thought, why, why do we have like, you know, we had maybe four African-Americans in our church? Like, why, why is the church so divided? And, and I thought, Every Sunday morning that I did that, I thought, you know, I should just stop and like just join them. And and part of the reason I didn't, I wish I did. Part of the reason I didn't was I had a, I actually had a job to, that I was going to um, minister ministry that I was going to at my church. Um, but why the division? And of course, we can trace a lot of that to fifty years ago, sixty years ago. African-American brothers and sisters not being allowed in the white churches or having to sit like up in the balconies. Can you believe that? Not being allowed into white seminaries, like the seminaries that, that we support and like laud, like Southern Seminary or Columbia Biblical Seminary that I studied at as well in, in, in South Carolina. Until the late 60s wouldn't allow African-American students Humility will cure the hostility. And you know, it's doing that today. You know, we need each other. Let me tell you something. The African church today, um, if you want to talk about the Episcopal denomination, okay, as you know, in America and in Europe, the Anglicans are, are just, you know, just, just on a terrible glide slope downhill, going liberal, you know, throwing the Bible out the window. Um, you know who's holding them back to, to the word? It's our African Anglican brothers who believe the Bible. They believe this is the inspired, authoritative, inerrant word of God. And so African bishops are what are keeping the Anglican church from completely going to hell. Praise God for that. You know, in, in Europe today, uh, if you go to, and I've shared this statistic with you before, but, but if you go to the major cities, contrary to what you would think, more people go to church in the main cities than in the rural communities in Europe. Do you know why? It's not the Germans and the French. It's not the white people, in other words. 
It's, it's the immigrants. It's the people that they sent missionaries out to 200, 300 years ago who are bringing the gospel back, who are holding steady because they believe the gospel. You go to a church in London, and you'll find 50 ethnicities, and it's beautiful. And that's what I pray for, for us. Uh, let us be humble. Philippians 2, 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. For we are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord, and we pray that our unity will one day be restored, and they will know that we are Christians by our love. Let's pray. Lord, may that be true of us. Lord, I pray for Rocky Bay Baptist Church for us. Lord, may the world know we're Christians by our love for you and for each other. And I thank you for those who are noticing that. But Lord, help us be a place that's just a magnet for people coming from different cultural backgrounds or different ethnic backgrounds. Lord, may they find your great love for them here. I pray that the world would know that we are Christians by our love, that love that you worked in our hearts through Christ. Thank you for him. Thank you for his sacrifice on the cross for our sins so that we might rise one day like Christ did. In his name I pray. Amen.